welcome. You found the People Chattanooga Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today on the show, I have Tim Kelly. Tim is the owner of Kelly Subaru and an owner of Chattanooga Brewing Company and also a founder of Chattanooga Football Club. And if that wasn't enough, he is currently running for mayor. During our almost two-hour uninterrupted conversation, we talk about his childhood and education, his unique perspective on religion and its usefulness, and of course, his most proud life work ever so far, starting the CFC, which is the Chattanooga Football Club. And yes, we do get personal as he openly shares his opinion of the Chattanooga Red Wolves soccer club and how they tried to buy out the CFC, and when that failed, they tried to put them out of business instead. This is a candid conversation that flows naturally, and you get to learn who he is as a person and not just as a potential politician. We do end the show with some ideas that he has for making Chattanooga an even greater city than it already is, and I find out the reason that he is running for mayor. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim Kelly. Okay, and we're live. We're recording. I'm sitting here with Tim Kelly. How you doing, Tim? I'm great. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. It's uh, nine in the morning and clear brain, and let's have a conversation. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. So um, let's start in the car business. A lot of people know you from all the Subarus you see around town. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's a few. <laughs> how, did, how did that start? When did you um, first get in the car business? So my family started in the car business back in the 1930s. My grandfather actually was born, you know, on a watermelon farm on the back of Sand Mountain. And um, I don't know because my mother was an only child and he died uh, four months after I was born and really didn't have much uh, of a relationship with any of his, the family that he left because he left that farm under obviously somewhat, uh, he wasn't happy. And he, he worked as, he was actually a, a boarding, he he was a boarder behind um, a woman's house just to get through high school off that farm and then went to Birmingham Southern in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, got a job at General Motors. Uh, during the Depression, he was sent up here to run the Cadillac Oldsmobile uh, store under receivership, you know, because it had gone out of business. And he just, since it was close to where he was born, he stayed. And he started the Cadillac store. So it was... Uh, Ayers Motor Company back in those days, old Chattanooga people remember Ayers Motor Company. It was Cadillac and Oldsmobile and LaSalle. Um, and uh, then uh, you're getting a full shaggy dog story here, but we got that, some time. We got time. Uh, and then my um, my mother uh, was an only child and married my dad. And after my grandfather passed away, uh, it was it became Kelly Cadillac. We picked up Saab some years later. We picked up Subaru in 1989 to directly answer your question picked up many other franchises then you know gm filed bankruptcy we lost some franchises uh, i went back to business school and realized like what am i doing right i should i want to do i want to be associated with the business that i really like and i would i would drive a subaru if i weren't in the subaru business and it's a great fit with uh with chattanooga so i said mm, I'm focus on subaru and it's it's been a strategy that that worked so i i got out of college and uh 89 and came back and got in the car family business because I was the only one to do it. If, it, if I hadn't, um, I guess they would have sold it. So I felt a, an obligation to do that. And it was a way to get back to Chattanooga. Um, 
and kind of dove in and Subaru was my baby. And when my dad retired, uh, we again, just winted it down to Subaru and that's, uh, that's, that's, and it's been a great fit because as Subaru's moved, become more of sort of an outdoor market and oh, Subaru's, yeah. uh, or Chattanooga has, and then Subaru's focused more on the, on the outdoor segment. They've kind of grown together. It's been great. Now, when you went, when you went um, back to school to focus on business, did you go to an automotive, uh, focused college or you to get an automotive? I, I, cause I, I yeah. am aware that yeah. that exists. You can it does. go to so there dealership is- schools. Well, there is a thing called the National Automobile Dealers Association runs a dealer candidate school. And I, did, and I went to college. I went to Columbia up in New York. had nothing whatsoever to do with business or certainly not with the car business. Did not think I was going to get back in the car business. Um, and then, frankly, just felt, felt the pull back to Chattanooga, um, partially for family reasons and partially because I love Chattanooga. Um, but when I decided, when it became clear that I was going to stick around in the car business, my dad sent me to this. It was two years of kind of back and forth uh, in hotels, um, dealer candidate school. And it was the closest thing I'd uh, ever got to really business school until I actually did go back. I went back to Emory and got my MBA in 2010, late in life. But yeah, so I, I got a little bit of, um, you know, formal automotive background before I just dove off into it. Yeah, this is a little side tangent because I love Tesla and and Tesla does not have a dealership model. Do you want to explain the differences? I don't know if many people know about this. Yeah, sure. So, well, back in the old days, you know, manufacturers would just make cars. They didn't have a way to sell them or distribute them. They didn't have IT systems to figure out, like to communicate or anything like that. So it was just like, well, what's a fair markup? You know, we'll mark them up and then find a guy in, you know, Pocatello and Chattanooga and Dallas and New York to be a dealer. Somebody had to put up the money for the repair parts and and to, you know, to trade for cars and things like that. So that was how we wound up with the franchise system. The, the you know manufacturers would would uh, appoint dealers the dealer became the customer of the manufacturer and the end customer was the customer of the dealer um, obviously things have changed a lot since those days and so Tesla um, and there and there are you know laws rightly or wrongly to sort of protect that model um, most of those are I think appropriate because they protect the dealer's investment to keep, you know from the manufacturer could in theory just yank the rug out from under them. But there's also a cogent argument that they're anti-consumer because, you know, if you can buy directly from the manufacturer, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you just be able to do that? So Tesla, when they came in, having started from a clean slate, just took that approach. Right. Um, and uh, and times worked out well for them. And times have changed for sure. Times because changed. like you say, Tesla couldn't have done that 50 years ago when these no. laws started because of logistics. We didn't have right. ways to track all the data and things like right now. Precisely. I think, I mean, the, the one, the one counter argument that you could make, of course, is that if there were two Tesla dealers in a given market that were owned by independent franchisors, they would compete with each other and drive down the price of the Tesla. Right now, you're paying the equivalent of sticker price every time you buy a Tesla. You pay, yeah, that's um, yeah. like that or don't like that. There's no discounts with no, Tesla. It's, no, exactly. it's yeah. yeah, it's easy to shop. You either buy it or you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you drive a Subaru right now? I do. What do you have? Uh, Crosstrack. Crosstrack. Uh, XV Sport, which is, they just came out with a, uh, usually the Crosstrek has had the smaller two liter uh, boxer engine in it and they put the 2.5 in it. 
uh, and it's it's really nice. It's not faster per se, but it gets much better highway gas mileage and just feels a lot more solid. So the bigger motor gets better fuel economy. Yeah, go figure. Yeah. It has to do with you know it, it's able to rev at a lower RPM sure. at a given you know uh, transmission gearing. So yeah, it's it works out great. But I like them all. I mean, I've driven everything and I, I cycle around. You know, what was your first Subaru? Oh my God, man! Uh, my first Subaru would have been like a eighty nine legacy sedan manual transmission nice um yeah it was cool i liked it everybody else thought it was goofy i mean it's not wasn't that long ago the subaru at least around here was not uh <laughs> not the hip car to be driving yeah i remember i know a little bit about the history yeah. of subarus yeah. yeah um i don't know if we can say this um I think they were marketed towards lesbians back in the day. Well, they were, that was, uh, I was around for that. I mean, a lot of this stuff was stuff that was sort of a uh, subculture that, that Subaru's management, um, where they actually hired a marketing firm that, uh, a couple of in series that took the strategy. Uh, and I was on the national dealer council. I mean, I was one of the ones pushing them to do this, to sort of make the invisible visible, to make yeah. the subculture more, uh, more obvious. And it was very, very controversial at the time because Martina Navratilova, the famous tennis player, who mm-hmm. I think happened to be a lesbian, uh, drove one and sort of everybody knew it. But even then, like that was when people um, really didn't talk about it, right? Right. And so it was pretty controversial. But uh, but yeah, we um, we have uh, embraced that sort of diversity marketing from the beginning and it's worked out well for us. Yeah. Yeah, it worked for good as a com- I thought it was a genius strategy. Yeah. Um and you meant you touched on this already. Chattanooga is is probably the perfect town to have a Subaru dealership. Well, Asheville's a little more perfect. You know, we judge we judge things by market share. Okay. And uh, or if you go to Colorado for example, um the the F, you know, the F150 is the number one selling vehicle, the Ford F150 pickup truck in the United States, hands down. I mean, it's, it sells better than anything. Yeah. Like but it, in, I think like double. Of, yeah. Yeah. It's the crazy. next thing. Yeah. But in Colorado, in the state of Colorado, the Subaru Outback alone out registers the F-150. That tells you anything. Wow. I mean, so as, as many Subarus as you see here, we're still at probably 4% market share. Whereas if you go to like Asheville, it's gosh, it's probably six or seven. Mm-hmm. If you go to, you know, uh, parts of Colorado, it's like 15. And what's the number one here in Chattanooga? Um, it's F-150? Yeah, it definitely would be the F-150 here. Yeah. Um, and, and we sell, I mean, I think we're number five in the marketplace here, which is which doesn't sound like much, but Subaru is a niche brand. And if you think about all the brands in the market, I think in Chattanooga it goes, I think here it goes, Nissan, Honda, Toyota. Toyota's not number one here, and it is most places. Mm-hmm. And then maybe Ford. I'm sorry, Ford. Ford maybe two or three now. But anyway, the top four would be Ford, Nissan, Honda, Toyota, and Subaru's like five. I mean, it's ahead of Hyundai and Kia, and notably Volkswagen, which has a plant here, which I've always found amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're proud of it. We we've done well with it. Subaru doesn't really have any competitors so to speak it does who it's are the who are the yeah. competitors well i would say volvo volvo was a big one i think in many respects we took a lot of volvo's market share because i remember very distinctly when subaru um uh, changed their engineering to and they came up with this thing called ring-shaped reinforcement and it was very wonky and very japanese engineer but man the cars in about 1995 or 6 suddenly just got they started turning in these insane crash test ratings just 
they were safer, safer than Volvo's. And Volvo's thing has always been, had always been, and Saab too, to some extent. Yeah, maybe the cars are not as reliable and so on, but they're super safe. Like if you want a safe car, this is the car for you. Well, suddenly, you know, with Subaru, you could get a really safe car and a really reliable car. And that's, I think, when Subaru really started taking off. And and their price point's a little lower, isn't Saab yeah. and Volvo a little more? Well, Saab's gone. I mean, that's a whole nother. We could spend the next two hours talking about the sad tale of Saab because I love those cars. They disappeared? Disappeared. Oh. General Motors put a bullet in their head and... Uh, mm. It was a really sordid tale, but uh, but Volvo's still around and making really cool cars. I'm a big fan of Volvo's, but uh, yeah. So you know, but you're you're right in a way that there aren't a lot of. I mean, people cross shop plenty of other stuff. Um, VW and uh, is another big one, and Toyota and Honda. But yeah, VW. but it is a segment sort of on its own. Yeah, I was thinking the Alltrack is probably the closest. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, the Atlas is a really fine vehicle that they build here in Chattanooga, and that's a competitor of the newest Subaru, which is an Ascent. Um, so you know, there's it's there's competition. I mean, it's uh, it's it's not a cakewalk, but relative to peers in like Atlanta or a place just that's completely flat like Florida, we, yeah. we definitely do better. How has it been selling cars during the uh, the economic turmoil right now? It has been shockingly good. I mean, I we were all in a panic um, when 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 all this hit, you know. And uh, gosh, it was it's difficult just keeping morale up in the dealerships because I remember very distinctly, you know, when we got the news that we that dealerships were going to be deemed essential businesses, and it, frankly, it kind of surprised me. And I thought, um, I never thought that would be the case. I thought we were going to have to hunker down, shut down, take the PPP money, and and we did take the PPP money because we didn't know at the time, you know, uh, what was going to happen. But man, uh, you know, we managed to get protocols in place and keep everybody's head screwed on right. And you know, it was not good in March, but in April and May and June, it just kept picking up. And we've done fine. We've done fine through the whole thing. Did you notice um, <clears throat> when the Volkswagen had their diesel gate in 2015? Um, did you see an uptick in sales? Yeah, Which, we did. Yeah, we sure did. Because Volkswagen, yeah. There were a lot of people that got frustrated and would trade the cars in to us. Um, and Volkswagen, I think Volkswagen handled that considering the, you know, the equities of the case. They handled it about as well as you could have expected them to handle it, but it was not a good situation. I think, um, the government, it appears that they made an example. Don't, yeah. don't do that. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> I think, uh, the Ram... 1500 yeah i think they got in trouble for their three little three liter eco, yeah but you don't hear about that well the irony of it is if you really peel that case back and i did a lot of reading on it you know arguably the obama administration put in emissions goals trying to really push the market towards electric that were not reasonable realistic manuf- like you can't hit them you couldn't hit yeah. them and so they kind of painted vw into a corner where they felt like they were either had to cheat or were somehow justified in cheating. But again, that's not what they should have done is fought it legislatively. You can't, you can't cheat like that. They, they, it was, it was not the right way to go about it. Sure. But, um, yeah, they, they did not have a lot of options, honestly, other than just withdrawing a lot of those diesel vehicles from the market. And the, the irony is, um, that, that motor that they took away from the market, that was a 50-mile-gallon motor. Yeah. Um, and then the F-150, number one selling vehicle in the in America, yep. what does it get, 18 maybe? Yeah. 
and yeah. and it's like you're burning more fuel but i believe the the diesel just put more ppms it in did there. it's it's uh volatile organic compounds yeah. i guess and they and they've got this you know urea injection model now yeah. that helps out a lot so yeah look the epa is um uh it's there for a reason and a, and a, and a good reason i'm not a foe but again nobody should be confused about the fact that a lot of the regulations um in well government generally but in but around the car business are there to protect certain competitors their barriers of entry right and uh and politicians can play with them just like they play with anything else and so it's it's not all on the up and up yeah yeah i totally see that yeah um is subaru have any electric plans yeah so um unfortunately uh when's this thing gonna air today okay well <laughs> Uh, there's news that I will announce soon uh, okay. <laughs> around this, but uh, probably today's not the right time. But yeah. um, but the answer is not really, unfortunately, because because they Subaru is a really really small car company, is what most people don't realize. I did not realize it's that yeah, small. Yeah, they're they are. Here's an interesting stat: we used to have Mitsubishi too. You don't oh, see that's much a talk about a small car company. Oh, yeah. What they're down to about three cars. I looked it up the other day. Well, here's the crazy thing. Mitsubishi is bigger than Subaru. It's just that they rely, they are almost completely out of business in the United States. Yeah. They just do a big business globally. Subaru is the other bookend. Mm -hmm. Subaru relies more on the United States for their markets, for their total sales than any other global car company I in understand, the world. Yeah. They might as well be a domestic American car company. Right. And they sell a lot of cars in Japan and some in Europe, but, but they're small. And what that means, of course, is that the R and D research, or the R and D, that's repetitive. Uh, <laughs> the, but uh, the R and D needed to do electric is, as you might imagine, huge, significant, and they don't have the bandwidth to do it. So they have this Kairetsu relationship with uh, the sort of, you know, which you see a lot in Japanese business uh, with Toyota. So they're kind of a little brother to Toyota, and they will get. And Toyota's got some fantastic um, electric technology. Uh, obviously yeah, they were one of the first to market the with, yeah, yeah exactly but they're going to get it when toyota's you know ready to give it to them which is mm. going to be after toyota has you know has uh, had their um you know fill of it so that's an issue and yeah. uh i mean subaru is a very environmentally conscious company but there's not much to be done about it i mean we we have to just kind of play the hand we're dealt in that it's, regard it seems like um I read a lot of this electric car news. It seems like we're really ramping up for electric vehicles. So, yeah. I mean, look, um, I think a lot of people don't realize what a huge bet uh, Volkswagen has made yeah. on electric. And they've made it in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. Right? So, they will be really the first, you might argue that General Motors is, but, but globally, um, the first OEM to really place a major, major bet, a Tesla-scale bet yes. on electric. And uh, and Tesla will finally have a you know a, 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 a broader market competitor when VW starts rolling these vehicles out. And again, Chattanooga is going to be the epicenter for it, which is exciting because I really think Chattanooga's brand is around sustainability. I think our economic opportunities are around sustainability. So it's a it's a great. And again, I think it's kind of beneath the waterline for most people right now because you know it's out of sight, out of mind, and the yeah. vehicles haven't hit the market and they haven't heard about them. But it's coming, and it's going to be a big deal. What's their first car they're trying to bring to market? Oh, you know, I can't remember the. It's like the i three yeah, or something. It's a, it's a weird.
weird. It's like an IO something. Yeah. I can't remember what the, the brand is. It's a cute little car. Mm-hmm. And then there, the, the, I don't know if you've seen, if any listeners haven't, you should go Google um, VW Electric minibus but everybody oh, remembers I've seen the old that micro one. bus that thing. is it's so, so cool looking. so cool yeah they make a great little camper and i think vehicle. that's going to be made here and that's uh that could be i think that'll be huge for vw are, is are they doubling down on their plant size i don't know i, I thought, mean i know they're working hard on an expansion out there i mean it's it's i don't know about doubling but it's gonna be i thought they're gonna mirror it or something could like be that. i'm not yeah i haven't you know obviously not being a vw dealer i would have sure. loved to have had i mean I'm, i know a lot of folks uh at the plant and because of the uh the soccer club you know my, i'm the chairman of the of cfc and we have a relationship with wolfsburg so i've been over there a few times and i know a lot of people you know in the in the company and on the german side of things so i'm a fan but not being a dealer i don't know that much about the you know particular market details sure yeah yeah what was it like to go over to wolfsburg and did do you see like there where they build cars there too oh yeah no like, yeah. yeah i saw the whole thing yeah it's it's really something i heard it's very clean it's extremely clean i mean i I was a German. We talked a little bit about education. I was, uh, I speak passable German. I was a German. I had a concentration in German in college, and so um, I, I've been to, been to Germany plenty of times. And it's just a very clean country generally. Um, but Wolfsburg, for a factory town, is uh, it's very much that. I mean, it's a town based around the factory. The factory is right down by the river. It's very you know, uh, kind of monolithic and old school looking. And now there's this whole kind of village around it with, a you know, with an experience around the brand and all the other VW brands. It's, it's very cool. I mean, it's close enough to Berlin. It's a little bit like, uh, Wolfsburg in some respects is to Berlin as Chattanooga is to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people get out of there and go to Berlin on the weekends or live in Berlin and commute. They've got a really fast train that goes back and forth. So there's not a hell of a lot to do in Wolfsburg, but it's a cool little town. Um, is the culture being a factory worker different than in America? I mean, I wouldn't yeah. say if you work at a car factory, it's, uh, you know, esteemed as high as maybe yeah. it would be over there. I think that's fair to say. I mean, the trades in general, I mean, I don't know how they got that name because they don't do a lot of trading, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, skilled blue collar labor yeah. is much higher respected uh, there. Um, I don't know how it got to be thought of as lesser than here. It's a damn shame because there are a lot of really great jobs yeah. uh, that people could be. Um, I could speculate because I'm yeah. guessing uh, more college graduates move into these white collar professions Mm -hmm. and i think just because you don't have the college that's just a little speculation i don't know no i think that's right i I think but i think it's completely wrong but i agree it's wrong it's like yeah yeah it's insane right i mean i I worked on uh, chattanooga 2.0 it was a big big uh, program here still going on to try to reboot our whole educational approach in chattanooga and that was one of the main topics that came up very very early on is how do we change that and you know i i talked to a couple of local teachers who were very candid and just said, yeah, you know, like we're, you know, we're all English majors and we're, you know, we all love Shakespeare. And so we think everybody should love Shakespeare. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong. But, but almost implicit in that is somehow, you know, that making a living with a wrench in your hand is lesser than, and uh, it's not, you know, there's some really good paint. There's no reason. I mean, I used to have a, uh, a can't conjure up his name, but he used to have a sob technician who was a giant philosophy fan. The guy was, you know, reading Nietzsche on his lunch breaks. And there's nothing mutually exclusive about, you know, uh, being uh, 
an intellectual or or in any way accomplished and and having a blue collar job and but somehow we've you know we've fallen into that and and it's it needs to change i mean for chattanooga is good it needs to change how how what are some ideas you have for that to change well i mean the what the school system's doing now with future ready institutes is a step in that direction because what they're you know what those are is these little um industry specific um uh, areas within schools it really mimics the european system you know in, in europe you're 15 or 16 you know you kind of choose a path you don't have to stay on that path but they're not trying to make everybody go to college and become a lawyer which is apparently what you know the united states has got 80 percent of the world's lawyers now evidently does it really yeah it that's does. an interesting statistic well, yeah uh we must have we probably have 80 percent of the lawsuits to match up probably i mean again it's it's an issue right so uh the but the future ready institutes are saying there's one that's based around construction trades. There's one that's based around automotive. There's one that's based around healthcare. And again, in Europe, they'll take kids 15, 16 years old and expose them to these things. And if you're interested, great, you know, choose that path. You can always go back and decide you want to go to, you know, a four year liberal arts school. Um, and you know, it's not, it's not, you know, Soviet Russia where they put you on a path and you can't get out, but it's a perfectly fine way to make a living, and and people, you know, by exposing kids to those, they 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 find engagement or traction. They they pretty quickly figure out like this is what I want to do. I love this, or I don't want to have anything to do with that. So uh, it it mimics that European uh, system in a way. And Dr. Johnson here has done a really great job of rolling that out in pretty short order. And I think as it gains traction, it'll really be great for. Uh, for Chattanoogans generally, and and for the you know for the labor pool locally, I, I like that idea. Yeah. That's um, you get to kind of dabble when you're a kid and your yep. brain's still developing. Then sure, you don't even know what you want to do. Yeah, but at least you get to try. Um, do in the European model, do the tradespeople get paid? A, is the difference in payment not as big as here? It's a white collar, blue collar. I think it's actually no. I would maybe that's Similar. right, but it's maybe because the white collar people over there don't get paid as much ah. uh, or it could be that um, you know the un- the relationship between unions and and uh, manufacturers there is is more is less confrontational I would say usually um, and and yeah I think they probably do you know the, the gap is not as great between the two I, it seems like we need to get to the fundamental which is the um, stigma that trade workers aren't as successful i totally agree i think if we boil it down yeah and then that program sounds fantastic um how do we do that you know i i think you're starting to see it um in a lot of the kind of maker culture that places like chattanooga are starting to engender people are going back to these basic kind of manufacturing pursuits um the guys i don't know i don't know why they pop in my head but uh, I met these guys over at Southern Spear, most of whom moved up here from Florida, but, you know, um, and they're, it's just an ironworking shop, but they do all kinds of different stuff. And, and, you know, there's like, there's a real great sort of, it's a, it's a different sort of work to work with your hands and make stuff. It's extremely rewarding. And, uh, and it's, it's fundamental. Like the United States yeah. needs to get back to making stuff. And, um, I, I, I mean, it's, if you've ever done it, it's apparent in the doing of it. And, and, uh, so I think 
that it will take care of itself with the path that we're on and particularly here in Chattanooga with the with this adjustment in the educational system yeah that's that's interesting um those guys are like <clears throat> that's like the boutique of um uh I think there is respect in the boutique side right. of trades but not like the mass side so so if you you know if you start a tiny house company right that's really respected Um, but if you're working for i don't know collar field or something right it's i think there's something there but you might need that little boutique to to jump start yep and and i think that might be could be how it starts yeah yeah, because they don't they're not ultimately different like you can go from work to work from one work from the other it's it's like a it's a branding issue really yes so I don't know if uh, the idea of, I mean, look, there are good unions and bad unions. I'm, I'm, you know, growing up with General Motors, I saw what UAW did. Of course, General Motors management did themselves, didn't exactly cover themselves in glory either. So I'm not like anti-union or particularly pro-union. There are some great unions. The IBEW here does a great job of organizing and directing electrical workers here. I'm a fan of those guys, big fan. And so maybe it has to do with guilds or unions that, kind of create a sense of, I mean, first of all, they do training, right? And, uh, and they, and it creates a sense of pride around the trade, around the job itself. And, uh, and that I think helps, right? A ton. Um, so yeah, I think it, like I said, the, ultimately they'll grow together, I think. And, and, uh, and you'll see a recovery in that, in that whole area. So, um, speaking of like that education stuff, you, um, you said you went back to school yep. to when you um, doubled down on the car dealership plan. Yeah. Um, what was what was school before that for you? Well, elementary or college? You mean? Yeah, yeah. So Columbia, I uh, Columbia University in the city of New York. It was, uh, I, you know, I went to uh, my parents sent me to Baylor here. I uh, get a lot of grief for not having gone to public school here. I didn't really have a say in the matter when I when I went, and it was a great education. I love Baylor, and. Uh, but getting out, I wasn't a great student, but my sister was. She went to Harvard. She was like Phi Beta Kappa, uh, valedictorian. And I was like, I would play the drums all through high school. I was, you know. I, Did you have long hair? Oh, yeah. Well, longer than yours now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. And uh, um, How'd that work here at the at the high school? What you said oh, well, I guess it didn't really get long until I was actually in college. It was long-ish, but um, yeah, I couldn't grow it too long. They yeah. wouldn't let me. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just was not, I mean, I was interested in school i loved to read but i just was you know probably a nonconformist to a fault people that knew me in high school would would know that um so but i made you know so i felt this sense of guilt to my parents because they you know she'd gone to harvard and i was like well, what are you gonna do you know and i was you know at the time georgia was not a hard school to get into and i was like all ready to go to georgia and be a fidel and party with my buddies and but i applied to all those schools and I remember, never forget because I, I out of a sense of obligation, and I made good SAT scores. I, I did. I mean, it, what was your SAT score? Um, at the time, it was a sixteen hundred point scale, and I think I made a fourteen seventy. Okay, a seven seventy and a seven hundred on math, which was a shocker because I didn't think I was that good at math. But um, and I wrote a really good essay. I mean, it was it was in a way it was like I remember thinking, um, well, profanity is probably not appropriate here, but. You can say whatever you want. Well, I I just remember thinking like, I didn't, you know, I didn't, it didn't matter like to hell with it. I'm, I'm a, a, there were no, there's nothing at stake. I had no expectations back to how we started talking. So I wrote this kind of kooky essay about my idea for the hierarchy of knowledge and, 
And I got this letter back in the mail one day from Columbia saying, like, not only would you would like you to come to Columbia, but we'd like you to be a John Jay scholar, um, which is like this honor scholar thing. And and here's a plane ticket to fly up here and see. That. I was like, I literally turned the envelope over. I'm like, did they get this address from? Yeah, is my name on this? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was like, oh, I'll t- whatever. I'll, you know, I felt like I had to owe it to myself and to my parents and, you know, to do it. So. I went up there. We, wait, hold on. We have to talk about this hierarchy of knowledge. Well, can I, we, do you can you recall? It's a it's a while ago. Yeah, I can. can um, it was it was a uh, it was just an observation about the the um, the kind of the long tail geometry or the 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 yeah, I guess the geometry of knowledge in that when you're a baby, the second day you're alive. The observation was. You know, all the experience on day two is half of all your experience. Yes. And on day 30, it's one thirtieth of all your experience. So how all of your, the early experiences are so, so critical. And like I talk a lot on the, on the mayor's trail about um, early childhood education, because that's the thing. It's like the huge thing. And the older you get, your reference points change and every successive day of your life becomes... Uh, less important fractionally to the to everything that's come before it. It's like reverse exponential. Exactly. Um, I've never thought of that, and I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I would have given you a plane ticket to well, go. Well, thank to, you. Yeah, yeah. I, it worked. Whatever you and know. That it, that can um, explain quite a lot of human um, issues with childhood trauma yeah, totally. because it's yeah. Uh, it, yeah. I'm a big fan of the whole Aces theory, and and and, and you know, if I get elected mayor, the you know, look, I think we need to take all of our extra capital and push it towards childhood, early childhood, not just early childhood education, but quality child care, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, because you're right, like, childhood trauma will mess you up, brother. Oh, yeah. and, and and so you should stop it if you can, and you should mitigate it if you can, because, again, every the further you move on down the line, uh, the dip, more difficult it comes, becomes to remediate, right? You, so You mentioned um, ACES. ACES. What's that? Uh, adverse Childhood Experiences. Oh. Um, so there's a guy at UCLA who talks a lot about this. Um, and as it turns out, it's super crazy. Um, to that point, to that theory, uh, they can give you, a, and, and, and it's starting to catch on. There are a lot of general practitioners in medicine that will give you this survey about things that happened in your childhood. It's not too intrusive, you know, it's pretty benign. But based on your score, from that they can basically tell you how long you're going to live whether you're going to have substance abuse problems all kinds of stuff and it's it's precisely from this this reason right i mean yeah. you children are fragile and precious and you you know their their brains are uh, like you say they're not even they're completely uh, elastic until they're about six years old after that they're largely the bread's bait mm. prior to that they're you know inc- they're incredibly impressionable at a time uh, when they're also incredibly vulnerable. So we just can't spend enough time thinking about how we take care of children. Yeah. Yeah, for that reason. Like and it's the, not just like I'm not trying to be, you know, um, kumbaya or namby, you know, but this is like a, a human societal utilitarian issue, right? This is where our human capital comes from, and we're just way too careless about it, I think. What are some What are some ideas you have for addressing that? That's a huge problem. Oh, it's a huge. That's a, it is the mother. I've, so I've done... So much. It's a fundamental. Uh, I've done all this nonprofit work in Chattanooga. Um, been on 
I mean, considering enumerate the boards, everything from Girls Inc. to Big Brothers Big Sisters to, you know, uh, the Chamber of Commerce to Allied Arts stuff. You know, a lot of these, Benwood and the Community Foundation most recently. And, you know, you look at all these grant requests and all these programs and what are we trying to solve? And for me, it's like swimming upstream and looking for the source of the stream. Like, what is the real source of this problem? And guess where I wind up? Early childhood. Every time. Like if that's, if you could solve that, you would solve so many problems downstream from that. Uh, so, I mean, my plan would be, um, to Andy Burke has started some great initiatives around early childhood, but we need to go back and prioritize a, a city budget based on, um, uh, priorities based on impact and, and that would be very, very high on the list. So whether it's, I mean, there are a number of good ideas around it from um, creating a standards program for, you know, the existing childcare market, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, is its own little free enterprise system. You have providers that pop up and, you know, hey, I'm ABC Childcare, leave your kid with me. And the certification programs in the state are okay, but they could be better. They could be beefed up and, and they could have a consistent curriculum, you know. I mean, if we could just get kids coming in, to kindergarten knowing letters and numbers and not having been abused, very frankly, um, emotionally or otherwise, then we'd be way ahead of the game, right? So that's one thing. We could be using YFD centers as early childhood education what's, centers. What's YFD center? Um, and I'm going to move this mic real quick. Okay, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, youth and family development. That's something that Andy Burke started in his administration. We sort of converted... Um, what was Parks and Rec into, there's a big one on the corner of, um, what is that? Uh, Wilcox and what's the road going across? Uh, I don't know what the, what the crossroad is, but, um, so they're, they're basically community centers, you know, but, but we gotta, you know, I'm a big best, best practices guy being a business guy. And so there are a lot of best practices from around the country we could look at, but we just need to find the best model for early childhood development and use that. This is a little personal question, but um, did you have any um, childhood um, trauma, for lack of a different word, that you rose above? Yeah. Do you have any experience in this? It's like I do. Yeah. I mean, I, um, you know, I can't. There wasn't. I can't think of any terrible, um, horrible experiences. But again, uh, back in those days, you know, you're, I still tell the story all the time that. Uh, that uh, when my kids were born, um, my I'm on my second marriage. My, my you know we still get along well. My first wife and I, and uh, but she did not. She struggled. It was tough. Two having two boys and under you know two years apart. I mean I used to call them my private Hezbollah. I mean they they were terrorists, man. And and you know the kids just have more energy than you do. They're grown now. They probably listen to this and laugh at it, but. Uh, you know, and she would get overwhelmed at times, and I would have to go home from work. And my dad, who was at work, was like, where are you going? I'd be like, what do you mean? I mean, you know, um, the kid's freaking out. My, you know, my wife's freaking out. I, I need to go home and help out. And I was lucky that I worked in a family business where I could do that. And he was like, he would just shake his head, you know, because he was from that old madman era. Yep. He's like, you know what we did with you? We put you in the crib, and we left you there. And it yep. didn't matter how how long you cried or what you cried about. You learned to not cry. You learned to not cry. <laughs> well, that's 
probably that's not good that's not good no. you know i mean that's not a good way to do it but that's the way it was done back then right so i you know i learned in in uh college um i had a you know just a bump in the road where i was like having anxiety issues and really freaking out not dealing well and so i've started going to therapy up in up in new york when i was there it's the best thing i ever did i still say to this day um you know like we work on our intellectual health by reading we work on our physical health by working out what do we do for our emotional health i think uh the talking cure in freud's words it's there's no shame in it there's no uh there's nothing wrong with it and people should do it particularly i mean it's it is good for you it's a wonderful thing you can achieve the same thing by talking to an emotionally healthy friend but we should it, the whole stigma around mental health is um ridiculous quite I, frankly i agree yeah. I, i've also done therapy yeah it's been life-changing yeah me it's too. very important for me too Hugely and important. and i cannot stand the stigma because yeah. it's um yeah if people find out you go yeah they're just like what's the matter with this guy? which is so stupid right what? i mean it's 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 I, say, I shouldn't say stupid i shouldn't be but it's it's silly and i think it's i think it's fear on their part because we spend most of our uh, certainly our adolescent lives, I think building the scaffolding around our egos to protect ourselves, right. Mm -hmm. To protect back to that vulnerability, that sort of inner child thing. Um, and then, so the suggestion somehow that you might not be okay is just like, well, no, 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 no. We don't talk about that. We don't, we don't do that, you know? know. And, And so when people are, are exposed to the idea of somebody else doing it, they often react in derisive or dismissive terms, but you know, it's, that's on yeah. them. That's not, it's on, on them. Yeah. hundred percent on them. You know, when you yeah. were in Germany, did you get a feel for how, uh, in Germany at least, uh, is if there was a stigma towards mental health? Uh, yeah, there's yeah. definitely not. I mean, I think the Germans have a much, um, for that, you know, shouldn't generalize, but I think, and maybe it has to do with the fact that Jung and Freud were both, you know, Germans. But there, there's there's certainly less of a of a stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think generally, what I know of German literature, uh, particularly post Second World War, which was, as you might imagine, uh, hugely as it should have been, hugely disruptive to their whole culture. Um, I think there was there was a much earlier. Um, embrace and notion of emotional health as a thing where i mean i think we can probably thank oprah winfrey for that in this country but i I don't know who we can thank but pretty recent thing right the whole idea of emotional health is a is pretty yeah it's relatively recent i mean i it it sort of entered the popular culture after i started going to therapy for sure because i can remember thinking great we're finally making some progress here and i don't have to be ashamed to say that I'm talking to a therapist, you know? Do you think, um, you say it's a recent thing, uh, mental health awareness. Do you think that's an indicator of a healthy growing society? I do. Because, um, and what I'm going with is, um, when you're just trying in like the madman or, you know, the area you're talking about with your dad, when you're just trying to get food on the table yeah. and clothes and diapers on your baby, right. you don't have mental bandwidth to get further than that that's it's the old maslow's hierarchy yes exactly and that's yeah you're exactly it i I mean that's you're exactly right and i think i think that is it and i think um for all our you know valid complaints about um current conditions um, here there and yonder i think as a society we have made some important progress in that regard 
and we are able to deal with things in a, I think, in generalized way, in a broad, broadly speaking, in a, in a healthier way. Yeah, um, I think you hit the nail on the head there. People um, underestimate the progress we've made. Mm-hmm. We like to look at our mistakes and not look at the huge leaps yep. we've made. Yep. And um, Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot. Yep. And um, I, I'm getting a slot of this statistic, but, uh, you know, um, people in... I don't know the 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 birth rates have gone the percentage of birth rates have gone way up. Yep. Um, the poverty in Africa is about what it was in England in like 1940. Yeah. So um, we're doing better. Uh, there's no question about it, and you're right that it's just it's easy to nitpick though. It's easy to nitpick, and and you know bad news sells better than good news. Yes. And let's face it, you know one of the and I don't have a better model, but one of the one of the distortions of the market that we should all realize exists is that, uh, you know, we have a we have a market-driven um, news and information uh, system, and you know, can podcasts are a great uh, a, a great shot over the bow against that system, but um, but yeah, because of that, we we focus on the bad stuff and we take the good stuff for granted. Um, I totally agree. There's a great Louis C.K. routine, you know, where he talks about. Everybody, you know, somebody sitting on an airplane bitching because, you know, like, I can't get internet access. Where he's like, you're, I'm sure, I don't want to rehash it for anybody that hadn't heard it, but he's like, you're about to be in a, a silver tube in the sky that's going to take you at like 800 miles an hour across the country. And you're complaining because your, you know, seat won't recline or something. It's just kind of human nature, I'm afraid. Yeah, he's a, yeah. he's a funny guy. Who's your favorite comedian? Oh, man. Um, I gotta say, Dave Chappelle. Chappelle, have you seen him live? Uh, many times. Oh, okay. he loves coming to Chattanooga for whatever reason, man. He he comes to Chattanooga more than he should, based on market <laughs> size. And that guy is just brilliant. I just I love him. I got to see him in Maui, Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, post COVID, you'll see. But he, I think he did, he did shows at the Tivoli like three consecutive years and uh got to meet him backstage last time he was here oh that's awesome it was it was awesome yeah um he's a you know he's a really smart guy he's a really I think he's a lot more sensitive than people realize and and those people um and in times like this I mean you talk about the need for self-care holy mackerel it's got a lot of people twisted in knots so uh he was twisted in knots that night for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> he really was um so uh, but, but he's still he's my favorite by a long shot I, I really had this huge respect for comedians yeah. I think they're some of the smartest people we have no doubt um, because they can they're basically sometimes calling bullshit but um, without getting in trouble for it yep and I the art of that so, I, so I'll try it doesn't work for me yeah <laughs> you have to be a special person you do it, it, like I, I can't get my words out when I, but they know how to get their words out yeah. in this entertaining way. But but I feel like they don't feel understood most of the time. And most of the time they're not, I'm and, afraid, yeah. And um they have a high suicide rate, comedians. Yeah. yeah, they do. Yeah. Because again, again, because I think they're I think about Richard Pryor too. I, I grew up listening to Richard Pryor and my dad loved Richard Pryor and at the time that was some really groundbreaking stuff racially and otherwise. Yeah. And, um they, they, you know, just beneath the surface of comedy, it's such an interesting human psychological phenomenon is always pain. And that's the thing. They're in a lot of pain a lot of times and they express it in, uh, you know, through comedy. Yeah. But if you think about most things that are funny, there's pain in it. We laugh out of a sense of, uh, 
lot of times because there's some friction or discomfort there. Um, I should also give a shout out to my the back to circling way back around the barn to the story about how I got to Columbia. Oh, we were going to go back there. Well, I'm going to take us back there for a second (laughs) because, uh, my, uh, still one of my best friends to this day. When, when I went, there were a cohort of us that were up there. They were trying to talk into taking this John Jay Scholar thing and coming to Columbia. And one of them was this guy named Brent Forrester. And Brent was from Malibu, California. And I thought, you know, here I am, this Tennessee boy. And he's like, y'all wear shoes. You know, it was, it was pretty (laughs) comical. And he was, I had decided I wanted to go to the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Maybe if I was going to go to a fancy school, study German, be a diplomat, or go to Georgia, you know. Um, and he was going to Yale. He'd gotten in. Most of these other kids had gotten in, like, all these fancy, fancy schools. There were a couple of kids in there that made perfect scores in their SATs. But we hit it off, man. We hit it off, and we were like, you're awesome. And, and the crazy thing was I realized at that point that my brain didn't work like most people's. Uh, for better, for worse. And it was like finding a brother. Like, I'm like, holy crap, man, I've been going to, I think part of my problem coming out of high school is I I couldn't find anybody I could really relate to. And and we related to each other really well. So he said, look, if you'll go, I'll go. And so we went and we were roommates our freshman year. Well, Brent went on to be a very successful comedy writer. And uh, he's was worked on the Ben Stiller show back in the day, and then King of the Hill and The Simpsons. Oh wow! And uh, gosh, um, I'm missing a, a few big ones: The Office, The American Version of The Office, and most recently Space Force. And he's the executive story editor. You'll see his name in the credits. And he will occasionally dabble with uh, uh, stand up. He came to town and did a thing at UTC, which we were grateful for and more sort of on the mechanics of comedy and how to be a comedy writer and how to break into it. But he's my other favorite comic cause he's my buddy. So <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're, he comes to Chattanooga, man. It's uh, Chattanooga is a great town and he and my other roommates, um, we all stay really close out, out of college and they will all make the pilgrimage to Chattanooga about once a year. And we, you know, we go trail running or, get out on the river and have a good time and they, they love it, you know? Now, um, do you ever go to any of these local stand up? You know, I'm ashamed to say that I have not been, I, um, they all came out when, when, when Brent came to town and gave his talk at UTC, they came out of the woodwork. That's a tight club here in Chattanooga, Mm -hmm. the comedy scene. And, uh, and uh, so I got to meet some of those folks, but I've, I've not been, unfortunately. I didn't know. So Barley used to have, a, yeah. I think it was Thursdays. I'm not sure what day, but um, starts at nine, kind of starts late. Yeah, that's and, a problem. I'm for, old. Yeah, yeah, they say it starts at nine, but you know comedians. So yeah. it starts at 930. Um, totally. But I love going to that, and I'm, I'm so disappointed uh, now that all that stuff, yeah. I, I can't do that anymore. But I was wondering if you would ever poke your head in there. I would definitely do it if it's, I'm awake at that hour. My problem yeah. is, you know. I, uh, I stay, uh, very busy. And so it's, uh, you know, up early and up and I just run out of gas. Right. And so, uh, yeah, one of these days I've got to just make a point of it. I can, you know, I go to Bonnaroo every year and, uh, or not every year, but have some, it's not like I'm capable. I'm not capable of staying up till two in the morning. I can do it, but it just is, uh, I've got to really make my mind up that it's important to do. So, um, so you and your comedian friend for yeah. his name, Went to Brent Colum- Forrester. Brent Forrester. Yeah. Went to went to Columbia in New York. Mm-hmm. And what did you end up with for uh, a degree? Comparative literature. Very nice. With a concentration in German, and then came back to sell used cars. Uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was a joke at the time. Like, 
the most overeducated used car salesman in the history of the world. Can, can you give me a brief overview of what comparative literature is? So you had to be able to you know, speak English, one, la- one other language fluently, which for me was German, and another language passably well, at least read it, you know, demonstrate a reading knowledge. And I can do that with Spanish. I can make my way around in Spanish. I never took Spanish classes, but I just, my friends were all spoke Spanish and they spoke Spanish around me. And I've always been good with languages. I've picked up enough to get by, you know, past the competency exam basically. And then, so a lot of other credits in Eastern religion, in literature, in um, anthropology, stuff like that. Um, you know, fancy uh, liberal arts stuff. It was great. I love school. I'm good at school, but you know, came back and realized that, you know, uh, being smart is never enough, uh, certainly not in the business world. And so uh, it was a weird deal coming back and realizing like there's this whole other world where all anybody cares about is outcome and execution. And it's true. Um, and, and from an organizational standpoint, I, the first six months I was there, I was in a sort of a state of shock because, look, I think a lot of the problem with – the world today, Jordan Peterson talks about this too, some I think, but is this idea that, um, you know, it was the, you see it in a lot of, without getting too political, in a lot of political organizations, mm-hmm. this idea that uh, just let the smart people run things and they know better. And, and uh, I'm a big Nicholas uh, Taleb fan and it's not, it's BS, right? Unless you have skin in the game and unless you understand how an organization works and are focused on outcome, um, it can just be an exercise in vanity, right? So um, I think, you know, learning how to actually execute on ideas and, you know, the, the personal analogy to that is learning to get out of your own head and that's why I'm a big fan of stoicism and practice uh, your philosophy is really, really important, right? Managing that, that nexus between the internal and the external. How, um, how often do you meditate? I mean, you know, meditation for me is like, um, I, I have, when I was in college, I, I did it, I had a very intentional kind of practice around it. And it was a really about, you know, kind of managing anxiety and, and getting focused cause it was kind of scattered. Um, you know, I, uh, honestly, one of the things that helped me most was just taking fish oil. Fish oil helps a lot. It really helped a lot. I have some on the counter Dude, right it, now. I mean, that stuff is the greatest stuff in the world. And there's this whole theory behind it's not really even vitamins, right? It's food, but our brains are really wired to need it, and uh, we don't get enough of it in a modern diet. So that that helped me a ton, and I really don't struggle with any any um, anxiety issues at all anymore. And part of that is because, again, part of it is um, you find ways to meditate. Oddly enough, I don't have like a like a what you would call a conventional, you know, um, meditation practice. I um, you le- I've learned that there are things from cycling to working out where you can go to a place and playing soccer for me, like I'm a goalkeeper and I consider it a form of meditation because you have to stay completely in the present. Yes. You can't project your head one second forward into what might happen. You or, or one second in the past as to, and to what has happened. If you do, you know, re- your reaction time as a goalkeeper is, is impaired, right? You just have to stay completely and utterly in the moment. And that for me, that's my, and in whatever way I can practice that is for me meditation. And that's what I do. Are, are you on a soccer team right now? 
you know, I'm in between because COVID screwed it up. I still yeah. play Sunday league out at Highland Park Commons. It's my my wife would tell you. I mean, it's like my favorite thing in the world to do. And it was a you know founding uh, member and um, chairman now of Chattanooga FC, and uh, so I, I just I love soccer. I love everything about it, and uh, and including playing it more so than watching it. And so that's a long winded way of saying that I'm about to join another team when HBC cranks up, uh, I think the season starts October 12th. Oh, cool. So I'm 53. I'm way too old to be doing it. Are you going to be goalie will... still? Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I broke on my fingers, you know, not all, but three of them and, uh, playing in high school and college. And then, and then, but that was before we had gloves. Yeah. Now you can wear these gloves that protect your fingers. And so I have no do issues. Have, do they have uh, braces in the yeah, back? Yeah, they got braces like, in the oh, back. No that only, kidding. That, that, only, can't that won't it. allow you to hyperextend them. So it's wow. the greatest thing since shoe leather. And um, so, yeah, I love playing. It's, it's one of my things, you know, if I get elected mayor, we, we need a healthy, every great, cool, progressive city has got a very healthy adult league soccer system. Uh, Austin, Portland, um, Memphis, even, you know, and, and we don't, and we need one and, uh, they're doing great stuff in Highland Park Commons to build something. But in those cities, you'll have, you know, an 030, 040, 050, gosh, some of them got 060 leagues. Wow. And we, we have basically, you know, I'll find an 030 team to play with. Although I was playing with a, an open league when, when COVID hit, I'm playing with, you know, kids that are younger than my kids. And I'm like, eh, well, something's wrong with this picture. And, I, you know, I told the, the, my teammates, you know, y'all fire me if I suck. And they're like, no, no, you're doing great. Uh, so, and I, you know, I think I'm relatively good at it for an old man. So uh, I love doing it. I, you know, I'll just find an older group to play with, but I'll play as long as I can play. Because it really is, to me, um, weirdly, a form of meditation. Like if you're if you're completely – if you manage to just lose yourself in the moment and stay completely focused on the ball and where the ball is, um, there are very few shots that can't be anticipated and stopped. And that's, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 I, I'm sort of addicted to that. And so you're going to work on, um, um, making this adult league. Oh yeah. I've been working on it. I've been working on it for 10 years. When we started CFC, ironically, we've, you know, uh, my co-founder, Paul Rustand, who's kind of the high priest of the thing, um, such a brilliant guy, um, you know, wrote our mission statement, which is that, you know, we, the mission of, the, of CFC is to, to use soccer as a tool to build community. We really, really believe that. So it's not just about the team. Soccer can do a lot of stuff, you know, across the community to bring people together of all ages and races. And so, I mean, it's just an amazing thing and it's so scalable and simple. You know, you don't need a lot of fancy equipment. And, um, so the first thing that my, my deal selfishly, clearly, um, was, man, we need to, you know, Asheville's got an incredible adult league system. They got like 1500 people in their adult league system. And it's a smaller city than Chattanooga and Chattanooga had at the time when we started back in Oh nine, uh, gosh, there was a league at readout. There was one at East Ridge. There was one, um, at North river and, they're, they're all just kind of fractured. So we, you know, I was like, look, we need to unify this and have promotion and relegation and do all this stuff like all these other cities do. And we kept getting distracted by other projects and false starts. And then, you know, the youth system fell apart. So we turned our attention to that. And that's how Chattanooga FC uh, Academy came about, arguably more important um, than the adult stuff. But we do see it as an ecosystem and adult leagues are a really important, you know, slice of that 
ecosystem pie. So, yes, I will not rest until we have a really cool adult league. That's here. awesome. Yeah. I I love going to the going to the games. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's, I just walk down there and. I'm have, glad you do. Oh, have a couple beers. I really um, was disappointed when this this uh, dude. It's yeah. one of my favorite things to do. Yeah. Is just go down there. It's I played high school in soccer, yeah. so I I understand the game. Yep. It's a fast paced game. Yep. Um, it's I missed it. Yeah, I dude, it, I, it it crushed me, as you might imagine. I mean, the club itself is uh, I can't. To me, it just embodies so much of of uh, the spirit of what Ch- makes Chattanooga such a special place. And, you know, a lot of the most rabid fans uh, of the club, I've said this many times, I'll say it again, you know, they, they weren't really um, soccer fans when they started getting attached to the club. They were more, it was just like the sport was a conduit for their enthusiasm for this place, mm-hmm. right, and for the community. And uh, they became soccer fans, and now they probably would tell you that they are soccer fans. But the, but it's sort of confusing the subject and the object, right? The point isn't really soccer. Yeah. The point is that being together and that that sort of, I would say, you know, tribalism's gotten a, a bad name, um, largely deservedly. Sure. But there's there are good forms of it, right? You come together down there at Finley with all these people rooting for the team and you feel like you're part of something. You know? Yeah. It will. It's contagious. Cause I can yeah. take uh, friends that aren't interested in yep. soccer and they love it. Yep. You know, so yeah. it's, yeah, I know it's the saying. thing I'm most proud of that I've ever done for sure. Oh, that's I fantastic. Didn't do it by myself, obviously. I mean, I had, you know, eight other co-founders and we all had a role to play um, in our piece of the, of the wagon to pull, but, uh, it was, it's a pretty remarkable story and it continues to be, I'm, I'm lucky the club has survived through all this and, and, you know, knock on wood, uh, long may it wave, but, uh, it's, it's really been something. What were your feelings when, um, the other soccer, the Red Wolves <laughs> decided to come into town? I like to think of myself as a fairly self-controlled person, but, uh, uh, man, we could spend the rest of the podcast very easily just talking about that. But let's just say um, the thing sort of was, you know, uh, had sort of, you know, Greek tragedy elements to it. Very, very. Um, Your literature is coming out. Well, yeah, yeah, it is coming out. But, but you know, there was there was one of our, our co-founders. So Chattanooga FC is fundamentally a localist movement. We yes. said from the very beginning, um, again, Paul and Crew Brock, um, Crew's another one that, I mean, I don't know a guy that's more dedicated to the spirit of community than Crew. And we all just kind of said, like, the, we named it Chattanooga FC because we said this is going to be about the community and it's going to be rooted in the community. And it's, we never conceived of it as being a franchised you know, private equity thing that we would pick up and move. And, you know, it, that's not what it was ever about. And we never even conceived of it being about that. And we had all this early success and we were approached by a franchise league who said, Hey, you know, you should join the franchise league. And which is full of these guys who own baseball teams and things like that for whom it's, it is literally just a uh, financial vehicle. And, uh, and we we're like, no, nah, no, thank you. Like, why would we do that? You know? And they can't kind of kept coming back and, and well, we're the way to, you know, be taken seriously and you can go pro with us. And we kind of, you know, thought about it and could never get our minds around how that fit with the culture. And, uh, not to mention the fact that it was a lot of money, right? They wanted us to pay them for the right 
to be in their league, just to be in their league, and then pay them a lot of fees per per annum, per, per annum or per month for things like you know broadcast management and uh, just nickel and dime stuff. Are those are those private numbers? Or can you tell us? I'm yeah, just, you could you could Google them and find them. Okay. They're they're big numbers though. Yeah, that's just kidding. And uh, more to the point, I mean, I've used this analogy before. I mean, you know Tremont Tavern, right? Yeah, uh-huh. so that's always my favorite analogy, right? If if Tremont Tavern does a great does a great job, they're localist. And this is really where I kind of fell in love with localism is yeah. around Chattanooga FC because Tremont Tavern is great. They do a great job. They've got their own brand. It's got its own character, and it would be as if the analogy I've used before is if. Applebee's walked in to just Dustin Schott, you know, the owner over there at Tremont and said, Hey man, you're doing a great job. You know what you need to do? You need to become an Applebee's and Dustin Schott would probably tell him, you know, some colorful stuff, right? As well, he should. But then Applebee's in this case, to continue the analogy says, well, look, you can either become an Applebee's or we're going to open Applebee's across the street. And that's exactly what happened here. We told him no, and they said, well, we'll show you, you know, because we've got all this money and they did, they got a lot of money behind them. They're this big private equity fueled, uh, thing in a glass skyscraper in Tampa. And they're, they're, thank God, poorly managed a relatively poorly managed, or they probably would have managed to crush us. But in some ways, you know, we feel like this is, it's almost like star Wars, you know, it's like the rebels versus the empire, because this is a grassroots localist, uh, fundamentally, you know, permanently Chattanooga thing that's under assault by an out-of-town investor who could and should probably just pick up the t- thing and move at some point somewhere else. Doesn't give a damn about the local community. It wasn't. It was never started. And and the really obscene thing about it was they, um, you know, through the we negotiated in good faith and eventually respectfully said no, thank you. They stayed in touch with one of our former co-founders and board members and hired him away. Uh, and uh, we just never thought that he would do that. And, you know, as he told us, he had you know, to do what was right for his family because they offered him a lot of money, and I've made peace with that. I understand that. But it was very painful and and, uh, and difficult at the time. And uh, so that's, you know, that's how they got here. And, you know, they wound up in East Ridge, um, which is fine, you know. <laughs> I mean, if you want to drive to East Ridge and go watch a soccer game uh, in, in a, what amounts to a, a high school, uh, a high school stadium without <laughs> lights. Now it doesn't even have yeah. lights. Uh, then then no, they good on the, you. You don't need lights when you have all the cars driving by. The headlights yeah. light yeah. it up at night. So I mean, I guess we should be in the greater grand scheme of things flattered, you know, that it happened that we drew that much attention to Chattanooga that somebody felt like they could come in here. But the thing I'll never be able to get over is they never intended us to survive. Mm-hmm. You know, they they made a really low ball um, buyout offer at the time, thinking we would fold. And we had a very um, memorable meeting where the board members got together. And uh, um, some of them did, very frankly, just said, you know what? Maybe this is not the, not worth the fight. This just is not me. That is never, that's, if I have a flaw, it is, uh, if you back me into a corner, I, I, it's just not going to end well. I mean, either I'm dying, you know, it's just not. And um, that's, and so we made the decision collectively. Everybody got on board and said, no, nope, we're, we're going to fight this thing. And we did. And uh, because I, I'd said at the time, and I, I still believe this, you know, we, the, the American sports system, you know, I'm not a big Bernie guy. In fact, I'm not even a small Bernie guy. I'm not a Bernie guy. <laughs> but I sound like Bernie when I say this, because if you really look at the American sports system 
through the just through the business lens, man, it is it is uh, you know it is an oligarchy. It is a really grotesque billionaires club. I mean, look at what happened to the Oakland Raiders. The Oakland Raiders. A part of that community, I mean, people got, I don't know how many tattoos there are out there, people in Oakland or the Raiders. And, you know, the team doesn't get what it wants, doesn't get at the fancy stadium it wants, so they pick up and move to Las Vegas. That's messed up. This is the only place on the planet where sports work that way. Certainly soccer doesn't work that way anywhere else on the planet, right? The club is part of the community. And so, again, the Chattanooga FC model is not a new model. We didn't invent anything. It's just a, not even the European model. It's the world model. If you go to Barcelona, you know, and I'm a big fan of Barcelona, and I was invited over there to speak, and I didn't realize until then how similar they were. But, you know, Barcelona is part of the community, and they do other community services. They've got a skating rink. They've got a, a you know, a volleyball club too. You know, I mean, again, the soccer club's the main thing. But um, they, they're never – for better or for worse, ever going to leave that community. They are a part of that community. And so even the word club versus team yeah. means more of a it's more inviting that you can be part of it instead of have to be one of the plucked yeah, guys right. that are that are hired. Totally. So, you know, we're we're thank God we've done well with it thus far. Thanks to the support of fans, guys like you and and Chattahooligans. And the, again, we did the crowdfunded. We were the first American sports team to do to do fan fan ownership um, in a long time, a true fan ownership. And uh, you know, we did that. Um, gosh, what's that? At the end of not last year, yeah. And you know, raised a fair amount of money, which we needed to get through. We didn't know COVID was going to hit until then, but. So, you know, we're going to be fine, but we are fighting for this independent soccer model, not just in Chattanooga, but around the country. Had we folded our cards then, because we were kind of the flag standard bearer for this independent model in the United States, you know, um, the whole movement might have died in the United States. And so that, the stakes were higher than just Chattanooga. But it's, a, it's, it's good to fight a good fight, and uh, we feel like we're on the right side of it. Do you have that Finley Stadium locked down under contract for a couple of years, foreseeable future? We do. We are about to enter into another contract negotiation yeah. with them. You know, now that, you know, Bob Martino's built the thing in East Ridge, yeah. it's hard to imagine, you know, um, them sort of saying, heck with it, because that was the other part of it, right? Behind the scenes, they were working very hard to kick us out of Finley, unbeknownst yeah, to us. Which is disgusting. Oh, it was disgusting. I mean, they had they had they were measuring the drapes. They had plans to put an office in the stadium club and it was, you know, and we had to come and make a very impassioned plea to the board and, and the Finley board to their credit saw it our way. But uh, should have never come to that. You know, yeah. even the name Red Wolf is a very predator. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, the funny thing is, in the wild, there aren't really any. You know, there's an argument to be made that there are no pure Red Wolves left. They're really just hybrid coyotes. Which Ooh, is a lot this more. is a na- this is a nasty <laughs> analogy. I love this. But yeah, so I, there is there is I I, I am definitely a. Uh, believer in karma, and I'm also a believer in uh, in uh, in forgiveness. Um, I think that you know, revenge and hatred are like, you know, the the best analogy I ever heard are like taking poison and expecting the other fellow to die. Mm. But um, 
it's been one of the hardest things for me to let go of. I've, I still haven't let it go. I've not paid, made peace with it. I'll be honest with you, I haven't, and I, and I probably never will. It was that uh, disruptive and profound. And I saw it not just as an affront to, to the club, but to the city and to all the values that the club was based on. So I'll probably never get over that. And, and if they um, fold, uh, you know, then you know, I don't harbor any ill will towards any of them personally, but it's... Um, you know, I hope they don't succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think about, uh, the potential plans for a, a third stadium now over by, uh, was it the Wheeland foundry or the U S pipe? Yeah. Um, well, you know, um, there's a case to be made. If they can do a development around there that makes sense and do it with tax increment financing, where essentially, you know, if they can draw people there, a percentage of the sales tax goes to fund it. Um, again, there's a case to be made for that and against that. Um, but TIFs are generally well accepted because they, again, you could argue, well, that's sales tax money that could be going for education and other things that would happen anyway. But in this case, I think we can fairly well say it wouldn't have happened anyway, right? It's only going to happen if they're able to do it that way. And in that way, it is being funded not by taxpayers, but well, it is by taxpayers, but it's by people paying sales tax because they're going there to spend money. And if that's what the lookouts want to do, um, then, then great. And I think uh, uh, I think there are higher and better uses for the current location of the lookout stadium um, up there on Hawk Hill. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic location. Yeah, and, and that, that's empty quite it, a lot. It is, and so I would I would I would like to see something you know, multi-use. And if that's a complex, it's right there where, you know, the freeway comes into town and it's a very high visibility spot. Um, we made a pitch, gosh, 10 years ago to the owners of that site Mm -hmm. to put soccer fields there because Chattanooga really could use a critical mass of soccer fields to, to draw in tournaments, adult league tournaments, youth tournaments, um, all kinds of tournaments. And again, you could play ultimate Frisbee or soccer or lacrosse or anything on, on big square green fields. But if it was a, there are a bunch of ways to skin that cat. I mean, obviously you have to have a baseball stadium to play baseball, but, um, there is a way to do that. Um, that ownership group has a stadium in Columbia, South Carolina that can be converted to a soccer field. So that's one possibility. What, what, how do those feel? The baseball, soccer combo? Not, not great. They, they did that in football years ago. Yeah. No, it, it's it, not ideal. Nobody would argue that it's ideal, but it does allow them to, you know, generate revenue in, uh, you know, in, in other ways. And again, it's an alternative. There, there are no Chattanooga is not big enough or wealthy enough to really, you know, pick its battles. And we do, we gotta, we gotta take what we can get. And so, um, uh, I would be, I would be fine with that. And then, you know, we pitched multi-use that, you know, putting a target over there and other, you know, multi-use development. I'm not a developer who knows, right. If it, if it pencils, it pencils. Yeah. But, uh, well, from what I understood, it was kind of a legacy uh, project for the owners and yeah. they didn't really want a target behind their name they wanted something more local yeah you know. i mean that would be preferable to me too it preferable yeah but yeah. Uh, unfortunately it's, yeah. it's uh, vacant after all these years yeah it's still, been a long time and that, it's still sitting there and that thing is only um needing to be repaired the, the big main pavilion yeah um there's a there's a shelf life on that yep if you don't yeah no start doubt. painting it yeah and so uh we'll see uh it'll it'll be interesting but it what matters there definitely what happens there really matters you know yeah to chattanooga oh it's so, a fantastic spot yeah it is it's, it's, we need to get it right and it i think one of the biggest issues is that 
you know, there's no sewer or anything back in there. And just the infrastructure to put in all the sewer and electrical and all that is going to be many, many millions of dollars. And the question is, who pays for that? Mm-hmm. Um, how? And I know they are putting the exit in now. I think they had the ribbon cutting uh, yesterday or the day Oh, before. really? They're changing the Broad Street and Market Street? There's going to be a way to get off of... Um, Gosh, what is that right there? Still 24? 24. And you're coming around the, the, to, to get off right there and come straight into that area, which will be cru- crucial, mm-hmm. you know, for access and development. Otherwise, you know, the lower end of Broad Street is going to get whacked. Yeah, um, it's already convoluted right there. Yeah. So, I mean, the good news is, and this is very Chattanooga, you know, that we've, we've taken 20 years to do this and plan it and consider it and think about it. And that's only because, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, our longitudinal growth rate here is not great. I mean, it's the last five years. It's we're, we're, we're lower than Knoxville. Um, so, uh, in some ways that's, that's good because it allows us the opportunity to plan and think, uh, strategically and carefully about how things should develop. Right. I mean, as opposed to Atlanta, which is just like a giant, massive kudzu yeah metaphorically speaking yeah Yeah. Yeah. you like your analogies yeah i do i do and do yeah you haven't heard the half of it yeah (laughs) um so okay we have to talk about um oh chattanooga brewing company yeah how did that happen an owner well it happened because again back to the localist pitch um the, the original owners who who deserve all the credit in the world for having taken the risk to begin with, uh, and, and dusted off the brand, which we can talk about. It's a really cool old brand. Um, and, uh, they, Mark Markham and Jonathan Clark were TVA engineers. They started the brewery. And again, I think it's a little bit like the hell's kitchen thing where they love craft beer and people are like, we, you should open a brewery. Right. And of course the business of that, um, is a lot more challenging than just making beer. And those guys are engineers and they're great guys and they're still my partners. Um, but they, you know, uh, being stuck down there, I think they thought maybe the area would develop with housing faster. And there, there are a lot of reasons they didn't really just catch completely on fire. I mean, in a good way, but long and short of it is we were, I got to know them through the soccer club and they knew that CFC was sending a lot of business their way. And then I was good at marketing. And so they asked me to, to come in and, and help them at first. And then it was, well, we, you know, um, we could really use some investment. And then, you know, before long, uh, I was kind of, um, running it. So, uh, and, and again, they're, they're still there. There's, and there's actually a bunch of other shareholders that started, uh, that are still there. And, you know, it is, it started as kind of a turnaround thing and, and it's turning around. I mean, we're really, we made a lot of progress there. TJ Griever from loopies. A lot of people know TJ from a lot of years. He just came over to, to run it. And I, my vision for that place is to kind of just to be a hub for all things local. So, you know, we've got the farmer's market coming there uh, every other week. We do a Friday market, which I got the idea from going down to New Orleans and going to the Frenchman Street Market, you know, which is a lot of artists and um, artisans and craftsmen and cool stuff. Um, You know, I I just think Chattanooga needs to really turn into itself and think about preserving local capital and kind of, you know, Chattanooga for a long time had kind of... um, sense of uh collective insecurity 
where you know people were like, well, if it's from Chattanooga, it must be a bad thing. It must, you know, we should be in Atlanta or Nashville. Nobody took anything locally seriously, musically, culturally, otherwise. And slowly, you know, that's changing. But you have to give. Uh, here's another analogy. You've got to give. You know, you got to give the vine. Uh, you know, something to grow on. So I think that's important. And uh, in Chattanooga, I mean, the brewery itself is an incredible local story that a lot of people don't realize. We flirted with the idea of actually doing a documentary about this because it's pretty remarkable. From, you know, right now the brewery is a significant local craft brewery, makes about 3,000 barrels a year. Um, but the original Chattanooga Brewing Company was down on the river. It was founded in 1890. 1890. Um, by a couple of guys, a guy named Charles Reif, and his his descendants still live in town. Um, they, uh, but but it started in 1890. They came from Cincinnati, Germans, and that thing within 15 years was the biggest brewery in the southeast. It was making 150,000 barrels a year. If you go back through old newspapers and, and microfilm. Uh, you know, you can find really cool old Chattanooga Brewing Company ads everywhere from Texas to Miami, uh, Atlanta, full page ads in the Atlanta paper all the way to Cincinnati. And, uh, it was a huge brewery. It was a huge part of Chattanooga culture and what Chattanooga is really cool. I'm a brand guy. So the branding and stuff that comes out of it, it's on the website. Actually, there's a history tab you can look at some really, really cool stuff. And then, um, sadly, you know, when prohibition came around, you can see their, you could tell it was in the public discussion. It was because they would run ads saying like, this is not a good idea, folks. Um, you know, ban whiskey if you want, but like, there's nothing wrong with beer. Temperance is the way. And temperance at that time, um, really implied just getting rid of whiskey, um, but not beer lower, you know, and, uh, but they lost the fight, you know, and they were actually one of the main litigants against the state of Georgia, along with Christian Moorline, the brewery in Cincinnati to fight a prohibition law. They lost. And of course the rest is history. You know, they went out of business. Um, and you know, Mark and Jonathan, uh, dusted off all those old brand assets years later. And oh, wow. We the, brewery. the other really interesting thing is all the, it was such a big part of the local economy that it had, there was all this secondary uh, industry that grew up around it, including, you know, the companies that made the bottles, uh, which you still see the bottles floating around antique shops and stuff around here in the, in the crates. And that's part of how Coca-Cola uh, got started here because the, the entrepreneurs that started Coca-Cola um, knew that that infrastructure was already here. And at that time, of course, Coca-Cola was just a fountain drink out of Atlanta well, I mean, they had the bottling facilities already here. Why not crank it up in Chattanooga? And that's exactly what happened. So there is a real, if you look at our, our script, our Chattanooga Brewing Company script, it looks a little bit like the old Coca-Cola script. It's, there is a relationship there that's fascinating uh, part of Chattanooga history. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like history. Um, wh- whose idea was it for the habanero beer? That was uh, either Mark or Jonathan. That was not mine. Um, that one started before I came along. I love that one. Yeah. It's a, that one stays on tap at the brewery and, uh, we just canned it for the first time. And I'm, uh, I'm not a fan, man. I I love hot sauce, but I just can't, to me, it's like putting ketchup on a waffle or something. I'm just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I love it. I love it. I'm only good for about two of them. It's uh, you know, it's not an all day beer. Yeah. We just 
started, um, actually Jordan, our head brewer is also from Michigan. Like you moved down here and just doing a fantastic job. And we've got a new beer that's a throwback. You know, one of their mainline beers back in the day was called Faultless. Mm-hmm. And we actually just copied the old bottle. Um, if you've looked at an old Chutney Brewing Company bottle, it's yeah. got these kind of stubby little wings on it. And it's like a 4% super light beer. It's fantastic. So I'm really proud of that. That's It's going to do well for us, I'm sure. Yeah. That, so the branding is the same, as, but uh, the actual beer, you don't have any other old recipes, do you? We've done our best to find them. I'm, I'd stay out of that, right? I learned a long time ago. I don't dabble in stuff I don't know about. Sure. So I don't get involved with that. Jordan does a really good job of doing his historical research. Um, another interesting story around the... The breweries, there was an original beer called Zachrel Brow. We started doing the research on that. I'm like, who the hell is, what is that? Turns out the guy that uh, everybody, well, if you're a beer drinker, you're familiar with Paul Anner, right? Which is a famous Munich brewery uh, around the Paul Anner monks that started it. Well, the, there was a guy named Charles Zachrel uh, in Germany who co- commercialized that monastery brewery. And it was called Zachrel beer in Munich for a long time. And then they changed it back to Paul Anner at some point. Well, these German fellows that the Reif, uh, Charles Reif that started Chattanooga Brewing Company had somehow from connections back in Germany, the, the right to um, the license to, to make that beer here. And they called it Zachrobrau. It was their Doppelbach and they called it Zachrobrau. And they're, they're, uh, I love this phrase. I wish we could use it. I don't think the uh, food and drug administration would allow us to do it, but they're, their phrase was our beer is pure liquid food because mm-hmm. <laughs> that Doppelbach is real malty. It's literally like drinking a piece of pumpernickel. Um, and that, I think, I don't know this to be true, but I, I, I know because the, the Powellander Doppelbach recipe hasn't changed in a lot of years. It's pretty damn close to the original. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a acquired taste because Doppelbachs aren't for everybody, but it's a really good beer. Yeah. Well, um, you know, that reminds me of Germany again. And, um, did you get to see any football games when football oh, yeah. when you were over there? Absolutely. Yeah, it's fantastic. Oh my God, we I've been a couple of times, and you know we obviously went to Wolfsburg games. Um, saw him play Werder Bremen a couple of times. We also got in the car and drove to a Hanover uh, a '98 game, um, and it was fantastic. I mean, you can that's the you know soccer tourism's a thing. You, yeah. know, you go over there at the right time of year because there's so many levels. You know. Um, a lot of Americans don't understand how promotion and relegation works, but it's such a magical system, right? Uh, the way we like to explain it is it's as though, you know, think about everybody's familiar with single A, double A, triple A, major league mm-hmm. baseball. If the, if the top three teams in triple A at the end of the year um, got sent up to the major leagues, right? What an opportunity for cities like Nashville. If the bottom three teams in the major leagues got sent down Maybe Atlanta wouldn't suck so bad every yeah. year, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's the irony of it is it's accountability. It's accountability, right? And and it's a meritocracy. And in some ways, uh, the United States is the most meritocratic country in the world, except when it comes to sports. That's hilarious. In which case, you know, we're happy to just hand the keys to these billionaires and say, "Oh, never mind," you know. But you know, Leicester City that won the Premier League a few years ago in England is a smaller town than Chattanooga. Like, what if the lookouts? could a be in the major leagues and b win the world series. Why not? Yeah. If, if the owners are willing to invest in them and they've really built a better mousetrap and they've got a better team. So, you know, look that and and that system, because it's dynamic, it it attracts a lot more investment, right? Because somebody could look at a team like the lookouts in baseball or, or again, Chattanooga FC in soccer and say, you know what? 
this team's got the culture and the structure and the background to go all the way to the major leagues. I'm going to put in a couple million bucks and we're going to go all the way. Well, hell, that can't happen here because you can't, you know, the upside is is uh, extremely limited. So I say all that to your original question, because the system is so bright, vibrant in other countries, um, you know, I also been to Argentina a few times and my wife at first was shall we say, reticent. Uh, she was a little hesitant. I'm like, listen, we're going to go to a soccer game. It's going to be kind of hairy. Uh, she's, she's, a, she's rough and ready, man. She's a, she's a trooper, so she's great. But, you know, she, so she got it out. But God almighty, what a lot of fun. If you like soccer, you know, go to a Latin American country or go to Europe oh, yeah. and just pull them up on your phone. It's chick, the tickets are cheap. The culture is amazing. It's just, it's the most fun. So I, I went to uh, a soccer game in Ecuador. Uh-huh. And, um, the fans are crazy. Yeah. So um, they were separated. Yeah. Uh, home team on this side, uh, away team on the other side. Right. Separated by a fence. Yeah. That you can't climb over. Right. And with a razor wire at the top. Yes. Yep. And guards with guns. <laughs> yep. And there was a moat around the <laughs> field. So unless you're jumping 12 feet or something, you can't run out on the field. God, I think um, Ecuador once went to war over soccer. I think I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It was. It was astoundingly fun. Yeah. It was. Just to be part of that environment was great. Argentina's that way. I went to a Boca Juniors game in in, in Buenos Aires, and holy crap, man! That this team—sorry, that was my chair. Yeah. Uh, this team came in from—I can't remember. It was somewhere in the west of north. No, it was Cordoba from north northern Argentina. The sticks, you know, as far as they were concerned, and they just were abusing those guys, and they literally kept us the the riot police kept us there until the other team got out and yeah. left. They would not allow any contact between the two time two sides. But you know, back to the tribalism thing, um, I mean, that's probably a as healthy a way as possible to exercise that muscle. I think um, part of the problem we've got in this country is we don't have good ways to exercise that. We don't have an outlet for that. No, an outlet for that. Not a not not one that really you know lances the boil, as it were, and uh, so it just spills out elsewhere. Yeah. Well, that that leaves me a question that my friend Matt wants yeah. me to ask you, yeah. which is, um, if you were you were running for mayor, I am, and if you were to have that position, how would you handle um, current protests and? Um, riots or looting yeah. or things like that? Uh, this is not going to be an exciting answer, but I would handle them pretty much exactly like they've been handled now. I think the CPD's done a pretty damn good job of, you know, of, of handling them. The, the department, you know, the, the mayor's office and the CPD have a fairly different take on life than the county mayor's office and the Hamilton County Sheriff's Department. The problem, of course, is the city is in the middle of the county. And so the way in which, um, and I know Chief Friday, we talked about it, right? And he was like, yeah, when I got tear gassed, uh, that was when it became a real problem for me. <laughs> so, look, I mean, this is not Portland. Mm -hmm. you know, we have not had the level of, uh, of just wanton violence and random crap that those other cities have had. Um, you know, the BLM movement and the George Floyd, uh, tragedy were, were and are real and there's serious issues and complaints in that community that need to be addressed. I would say the CPD is a lot further along in reforming itself, um, than a lot of people realize. A lot of those folks don't realize that. So look, I mean, I think they were made worse by the fact that we're in the middle of the pandemic and people had time on their hands and, you know, um, so I, I, I think 
to be to answer the question more directly, I would certainly have been more visible uh, than our current mayor. I understand his um, his concerns. I mean, look, that's not an easy job, and I am not a backseat driver, so I'm not I'm not running against Andy Burke. He's termed out. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm more of a um, I guess from my business background, I tend to just be more out front usually. So there's one thing I would have done differently is probably be a little more visible. What makes you want to be mayor? Well, you've heard me talk about, you know, Chattanooga and um, mm-hmm. my whole take on life. And I think um, I'm 53. Um, I just sort of looked around. I think after Trump got elected, yeah, I wasn't happy about that, honestly. I mean, we don't really we can dive into politics if you want. But I just sort of realized, like, I uh, complain a lot about things. But if I'm not willing to put myself out there, yeah. then I shouldn't complain. It's not, it's intellectually dishonest. Mm-hmm. And back to that dialectic or that, or that dynamic between getting in your head and out of your head, I, case in point, I was like, <laughs> it's time for me to stop bitching about it and, and, and get involved and put myself out there. And I realized at some point that I had a lot of opinions about things, but I, it was just kind of emotional cowardice, like fear of failure that I, that I hadn't done it. So I just decided, by God, I'm going to do it. And if I, you know, if I don't uh, win, then that'll be okay. But I love the city. I really, really do. I never wanted to be mayor. I didn't, like, grow up thinking, you know, yeah. I was not the, I've never gone, you know, to, uh, I've never, I've never ran for, you know, student council. Just not me. That stuff turns my stomach. But what I love about the idea of um, being mayor of Chattanooga and of Chattanooga generally is that it's not, it doesn't, it transcends the political or maybe it doesn't transcend it. Maybe it's pre-political. Um, you know, we have the power to control the quality of our lives in a city like this. I'm a huge fan of this book, the new localism. Anybody listening should go buy a copy and read it. A guy named Bruce Katz who came to town. Um, and, um, he, um, gosh, who was it? It was an enterprise center. It was, uh, um, drawn a blank on his name. I'll think of it in a minute, but I got a free copy and I read it and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And the thesis essentially twofold really one is that, um, localism is an antidote to populism, right? If you're looking at your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers in the eye and thinking about like what makes for a better place to live, you know, is it soccer games? Is it roads paved? Is it schools? Is it, they're not left or right. They're not totally. red or blue. Totally. They're, they're just these simple things and we can control those things at the local level. In a way it's like the serenity prayer, right? You know, you want to let God help you give you the courage to, to attack the things you can control and the wisdom to let God worry about the rest that you can't control because mm-hmm. worrying about things you can't control is a recipe for misery. And so not that people shouldn't go vote in November, they should go press the button and then they should walk out and forget it because there's not much else you can do about it other than casting your vote, right? You can do a lot at the local level. You can put your back into projects and work and causes locally that will return to you the energy that you put into them, right? So that's it. And, and like I've, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. And I think I, I have, you know, a vision for what Chattanooga, I've seen it. I've seen it through the lens of CFC games. I've seen it. I've seen it through the lens of, you know, working on the Community Foundation and Benwood. I mean, it has the potential to be, I'm just going to say, the greatest city in America, all all in, all considered. Not the mm-hmm. biggest, not the cheapest, you know, but 
all things considered, in terms of overall quality of life, it has the potential to be a truly extraordinary city. And I just, um, I think, and again, current mayor's done a great job in some respects getting us there. I would have done some things differently in other respects, but I think I can get us there. Well, I'm, I'm on board with uh, this can be the greatest city in America, and yeah. that's why I came here. I'm from Michigan. I've yeah. been here for four or five years now. Yeah. Um, work didn't bring me here. Just the the everything that Chattanooga has that's brought awesome. me here. Well, you're a poster child for what we're trying to create here. It's true, though. I mean, I talk to, I talk to so many people who are talented people that could be anywhere else, either you know chasing some abstract idea of success, career success, or making more money, but they choose to be here. Mm -hmm. And there's a thousand, not a thousand probably, but there are a lot of reasons why they choose to be here. But the one thing you can say for sure is they value something other, they they value something more than just um, their own, you know, selfish ambition or certainly a paycheck, right? So quietly, silently, what that does is create this community of people who value community for lack of a better term and and value all these assets that Chattanooga has. And I think we can leverage that to a much greater degree. And, uh, cause I hear that story over and over and over again, and it's really extraordinary and we need to be capitalizing on it. Yeah. Do you think Chattanooga can get too big? Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, the irony of it is if it does, it'll be because there are just a lot of like-minded people um, that come here, and but there are ways to mitigate that. I mean, that's what good urban planning is for, yes, um, and good growth management is for. And you know, a well-managed city can achieve that. And um, you know, the Lindhurst Foundation is a, is a great local asset, and they've got a vision for really regionalism, where Chattanooga is the is the hub of a of a wider, you know, gosh, four-state region, really. Um, and and so there's room to spread out, you know. I mean, are you counting North Carolina as I a for, Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't worry too much about that. I, I worry a little. I mean, I'm so encouraged by the conversations I've had thus far and about the potential for strategies post COVID and and what's happened to the housing market. If you've looked at the housing market here in the last sixty to ninety days that, uh, you know, we could be like the car, the dog, here's another analogy for you, like the dog chasing the car that catches it, right? Yeah. Now what? So we do need to be ready to shift into a, a mode where we are, you know, handling everything from traffic to, um, um, to you know, the tax base and schools and all that stuff that, that I mean, we need to get back to good blocking and tackling at the city level and doing city services, you know, reliably and consistently and correctly. Um, and that's, but again, we, I think we can manage it. How, what do you, what do you mean when, um, wh- how do you see what happened in the last uh, 60 to 90 days in the real estate market? Talk to real estate, you know, professionals, mm-hmm. talk to a few of them in the normal day supply of houses here, um, would be, well, well, yeah, we're short on inventory, short on inventory. Yeah. Right. So, and uh, the tornado really did, did, didn't help, didn't help. But then, but you know, the anecdotal stories I'm hearing about people moving in here from, um, all over the place are really starting to mount. Yes. Um, and that isn't a bad thing. It is a, it poses a difficult problem, uh, in terms of how we, I mean, the chamber of commerce is, uh, doesn't know how to look at that, right? Because what they're used to doing is saying, let's go find a company that brings 500 jobs and plops down an office right here. Mm-hmm. Well, 
you know, if the gig economy keeps going this way, and we are, which we're trying to do, we use the EPB to leverage great fiber, and Zoom meetings are replacing a lot of these up and back travels. I keep running into these people who are like, yeah, I'm a consultant or an engineer. I could work anywhere in the world. I work here, and um, you know, uh, and and I'm not visible to the chamber or anybody else because I don't have a skyscraper. But hey, I make a lot of money and I spend the money in this market. That's, I mean, the the economic community industry, the chamber of commerce industry doesn't know how to handle that. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to comprehend it. Well, again, Chattanooga's got an opportunity to build a model to comprehend it. And that's what we'll probably have to do because most people are just, you know, most chamber of commerce are, are looking like a deer in the headlights. They just don't know how to get their minds around it. But I, I'm a good strategic thinker. And, um, you know, I, I think we can a capitalize on it and B manage it, um, pretty well. If we can just kind of get started with a framework. Mm -hmm. Are you, um, interested in expanding the river trail? Oh or? yeah. The, well, the river, the yes. river, is it the river walk? I always say it the wrong way. Well, river the river, walk. yeah, the river walk. Um, again, we don't really, uh, market or capitalize on our natural assets well enough now um i was joking around my wife works in the outdoor industry in fact she's running stump jump she mm, she's cool. she's the race director for the rock creek race series and stump jump is the big is their big race of the year and it's actually tomorrow she's she got up at like the crack of dawn this morning to get out there and and, and mark the course and get everything ready to go but uh, so she's got a lot of exposure to that and there's a huge outdoor recreation industry here but even still it's not well coordinated enough. Outdoor Chattanooga needs to be elevated both in scope and function. Um, you can't, we have an incredible trail system, not yes. just the river walk, but the greenways that come off of that. You can't find a map of it. I, I challenge you to go on the, on, on uh, the internet. You can find one. I'll tell you where the map is. It's on a subdirectory of the Chattanooga outdoor, or the outdoor Chattanooga website. It's the only place I've ever found one. Oh, I was going to make a joke. I was going to say it's in my brain because <laughs> I'm, I'm a Google Maps fiend. I'm and, too. And, I'm too. Yeah, yeah, I can't help it. But I, no, there actually is one. That's oh, cool. That's awesome. Okay. No, there is one. It's a PDF. Yeah. It's a downloadable yeah. PDF. But we need to we need to create an app. We need to do an app for outdoor Chattanooga uh -huh. that you could pull up and say, "Here's all the walking trails. Here's all the mountain bike trails. Here's all the." It wouldn't be that difficult to no. do. Um, and uh, but we've got a phenomenal trail system. It's amazing. My, my, my wife is actually a trail steward on the Greenway Trail. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, I have a, a dream. If, if you, um, you can, Mayor, I would love to somehow help out um, grow the trail system. Yeah. And I really want a bike lane and a walking lane across that bridge yep. um, by bridge? the railroad tracks. I don't know the name of it. You know you have the dam. Yeah, um, and then you have the railroad tracks at the end. Uh, well, the start of the river trail. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. There's yeah, a yeah. highway that goes across. Yeah, and there's no way right now to connect Hicks. So there is a plan to do that. Okay, there is a plan, and it's for a suspended uh, thing underneath it. A new bridge. Yeah, well, uh, it would be basically a, sw a swinging bridge underneath the current bridge. Okay, and you, you, oh, okay. there's a plan that that exists. It's just a question of priority and funding, and and I would place a high priority on it because again, I think our outdoor, our you know, business people like to talk about sustainable competitive advantage. But in other words, what do you have that that nobody else has got, mm -hmm. and that other cities in this case are unlikely to be able to get? So how can you can you can you get it? Can you get out front? Can you stay out front without really you know? Um, worrying about somebody mounting the funds to attack you and take it from you. 
Well, but trail system's a classic example, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of Asheville. I used to go over there with my wife, Jenny, to, she was a Solomon shoe rep and we'd go over there and do shoe demos and stuff. And I mean, Asheville's great, but my God, man, you can't walk out your back door in Asheville and do half the stuff you can do in Chattanooga. And yet everybody, you know, talks about Asheville as being the big outdoor city. So we're not leveraging it well enough. And I think expanding the trail system, uh, it would be a very high priority for me. I mean, again, money is always a challenge, but it's a question of just finding the funding um, and then, you know, getting getting started. You don't have to do it all at once. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would definitely make that a priority. And, you know, Jim Johnson, good friend of mine. I don't know if you know Jim. You should if you don't. Um, Jim owns a, a bike tour company here in Chattanooga that does business all over the world. Jim's actually from Massachusetts originally. I recently read about him on Time Free Press. Yeah, just that's a great guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the plans he's got for a, a bike a bike trail, which he's getting, he's, he yes. presented to the uh, coalition of North Georgia mayors. He's getting some traction there, and that sucker would go all the way down, really almost to Atlanta, past Rome, and come back up. So we, yeah, I mean, look, and Chattanooga could be the hub for all of that. Um, so we need to get back on the front foot and really become uh, the outdoor city that we can be and should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like the idea for the app. Uh, a lot of people don't know where to go. Yep. You know, I go, I, I go to Edwards Point, and I and I just wonder <laughs> what percentage of Chattanoogans have been there. Now, Everybody I, running stump jump tomorrow will go because you can <laughs> run right past it. So <laughs> yeah. it's too late to register. But if you haven't been, yeah, it is amazing. Like the the assets around here. I mean, even you go back. Uh, we didn't live there long, but we lived um, on the back of Lookout in Dade County on the past covenant yep. and the trail network back there. I mean, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you can get from there all the way. Yeah. You're to talking the moonshine trails. And, uh-huh. yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You can come all the way back up now down, you know, the bluff trail, um, you come through St. Elmo and mm-hmm. you can go all the way to the dam on that sucker and, yeah. uh, and making that a loop to where you can come all the way back around through camp Jordan, all the way back down to North Georgia. I mean, that's possible. So I've read yeah. about, um, Jim's idea yep. for that. There's a, you know, and the trust for public land has done an incredible job here. I used to be on their advisory committee here and, um, we did some really exciting work and Jenny Park is doing some great work with the city now to complete that loop. And again, I would make that a very high priority. That's really important for me. And, yeah. um, that, I mean, now we're talking about exercise and if you yeah. have a healthy, if you have a easier trail system to use, um, everyone can be a little more healthy and that Dude, trickle I, down. I am that. a huge believer in COVID is a great example of the, the, the idea, the concept of, which I love this concept of exercise as medicine, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there's, um, I was talking to, uh, another friend, uh, Chris Ramsey about public health and the public health outcomes in Chattanooga are, you know, in, in low income communities are terrible and we've got to figure out a way to make these, to connect these right. communities to those assets. Cause right now they don't feel connected to them. There's some simple ways we can do that, but, um, but that's it. You don't have to do much right to make a dent in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also a big fan of what my, Matt Lyle's doing with this, uh, um, is it Eastline Trail, the one that's running from Lucy Boiler over? There's a bunch of these things that we can do that are not terribly expensive that would give people, you know, access to get out on a trail and walk and connect people between neighborhoods. And that and that is neighborhood development to me. And again, we've got such a just kind of there's it 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 really makes me super excited for the opportunity to be mayor because there's so much cool stuff we can do if we just kind of get started. 
Yeah, and there is that spur trail going to Alton Park that they're yep. working on. Right? Yep. So that's cool. Um, I don't know how to get Glass Street connected to the river trail. That's a little more. I'm not sure complex. there, but again, between we're so blessed with these great nonprofits and foundations that spend a lot of time and energy. Yeah. Lindhurst and and the and TPL um, have spent tremendous amount of, of of time and resource in Benwood uh, looking at this stuff. So it's there. It's a question of. Uh, you know, priority and execution. Now, um, before we start recording, we talked a little bit about um, religion. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? I mean, I can. I mean, it's, we're in the South. Yeah. So, I mean, I th- think people would be interested. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in a, um, you know, um, Christian household, Presbyterian, uh, but I went, I, I went to, and then, then started going with some other friends to an Episcopal church, which I liked better at the time. The pastor of the Presbyterian church was, I'll never forget going to a sermon where he talked about the, the Russians. And it was the you know, at the time it was like the cold war and we were all petrified that we were going to be blown up in a nuclear Holocaust. And he was like, you know, we should love our brothers. Bible tells us to do that, but the Russians are our brothers because they're, they're communists, godless communists. And I just, it just, I was like, this cannot be what Jesus was talking about. You know, it really turned me off of Christianity. So when I, and it, but it bothered the hell out of me. So when I got to Columbia, somehow Columbia had a a great uh, reputation um, for um, religious studies, particularly Eastern religion under um, a very famous guy there named William, William Theodore DeBerry. And I had a chance to study under him. He was, he would never know. You would think the guy would be some hippie guy in a Surrey for something like that. He was, he, he wore like a bow tie and he looked like a Brooks Brothers model. He was an old guy, whatever. But he was a brilliant scholar. Um, obviously, you know, under, you know, wrote and understood ancient Sanskrit and Chinese. And so I studied, um, you know, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism uh, under him and others and learned a ton. I uh, could bore you to tears on the history of, uh, um, you know, Buddhism from India through China to Japan um, or, or Hinduism for that matter. But what's weird is I got really um, taken with the, the notion of karma as a concept and began to realize as a concept, it's really not different from uh, what Jesus said, uh, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about turning the other cheek. I mean, the, the concept of karma is really just a concept of love and forgiveness. It's saying, you know, if, if you get punched in the face, you don't punch the other guy back in the face, right? That's an eye for an eye. That's kind of the Old Testament ethos. You, you let it go, you know? You, you look at the bigger picture because, you know, you will otherwise kick off a cycle of violence that never, never ends well. Right. And so I began that when I began to understand the relationship and there's actually, gosh, I read this kooky book. You talk about obscure books. There's a Russian philosopher named PD Ospensky, I think was the name. This guy's theory, and this is out there. I'm not, I'm not endorsing this. This guy's theory was that Jesus's missing years were in India. Mm-hmm. And that's what changed him essentially from a Jew to a Christian in the sense that he understood uh, these concepts of God as love, which were very different from the old teachings yes. of, of Judaism. And uh, 
Um, and hence Christianity is born. Now that's like blasphemy to a lot of Christians, obviously, because, uh, but whatever. I mean, it's, it's interesting stuff and it, and it's, uh, and it, it just, it, it weirdly enough, it, it turned me back. Not a, you know, I'm still not really a church going guy, but I am a Christian and I, it, it gave me a whole new perspective on Christianity and made me appreciate it in a way that I never understood it before. And I think I understand it much, much better. Now I understand Christianity as a religion fundamentally about love and mercy and forgiveness now that I didn't understand when I left here. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting uh, journey you yeah. went through. To yeah, yeah it was. I'm grateful for it. And I like that you, um, <laughs> like a better word, cross shopped. I like, did. You know, look, I don't think I'm not, I guess if I had to, you know, I've never been to a Unitarian church. I guess I'd probably feel pretty at home there because I don't think, um, as I said, before we started, my favorite Buddhist aphorism is, you know, scripture, or you could say just largely religion, um, is like finger pointing at the moon, right? The point is to see the moon. The point's not to study the finger, right? The, the, it's a means to an end. And, you know, the Holy Spirit's the Holy Spirit. And again, a lot of people take issue with that because they'll say, no, there's one way, you know, Jesus said, I'm the, I'm the way, the truth, and light, and all that. But I don't see it that way. So uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it matters how you get there as long as you get there. And I think, and the, what's weird, the sort of Gnostic aspect of it is, it's a lot of it is, is nonverbal anyway. And that's where prayer or meditation comes in um, because uh, words fail when it comes to really understanding, you know, God, I mean, there's a reason that, that God in the Hebrew Bible, I think literally has no name. I think it may be a translation issue because it, you can't describe that in words. Words aren't adequate. And uh, so it's a uh, religions of strange, curious and personal thing. So I try not to get too involved in it. Sure. Happy to talk about it, uh, you know, here, but, um, it's very personal for me. Let's put it that it's way. It's very personal for yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Most people. Yeah. And, and the South just has, um, has, uh, there's a lot of religion in the South. Well, so. it's used as not a, in a spiritual sense. I think it's used very, very, I know it's used very often as a social, um, yeah, connector. tool and social connector, which is fine. Right. I mean, it can serve that purpose, but I just, I hope that people understand that there's a difference, you know, between, spirituality and 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 religion and true faith and and false faith and and uh you know um look i mean i think um religion certainly shouldn't be a political thing mm-hmm. yeah should be outside the uh battleground i totally agree well um i love this conversation thank you man it was, I did too. It was really fun to yeah. uh get to know who you are yeah thank I, you it was yeah. a pleasure um, do you have any final words you would like to say to the city of Chattanooga? No, thank you for being who you are and, uh, keep on keeping on. I, I saw a sticker, um, once it occurred to me yesterday that I really loved. I had it by my sink for the longest time that said, uh, be a new Orleanian wherever you are. Cause new Orleans is a great city. It's one of my favorite cities too. But I mean, I think that applies to Chattanooga too. I think I'm going to do a sticker that says be a Chattanooga and know wherever you are. Um, because I think Chattanooga, I would ask Chattanooga to think collectively about who we are and what we are. Cause I think the more work we can do collectively to define our identity and, 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 and say it, and you know, whether that's around sustainability or the outdoors or community, um, the better we'll be and the clear, you know, good, good brands have edges. Right. And, and, 
Um, so they are things and they're not things. And I think one of the things we have to do is realize that we may not be for everybody, right? But, but you know, what are we and what aren't we? And um, that's going to take all of us really thinking about it and talking about it like this to, to arrive at, uh, at the right place. But the fact that we could say be a Chattanooga wherever you are and that makes sense tells me that there's something there. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Good luck with all your endeavors. Thank you, sir. You're quite busy. Yes, I am, but I'm I'm happy in my work. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. And there you have it. That's my conversation with Tim Kelly. Hope you enjoyed it um, as much as I did. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's very helpful for the analytics and how the podcast comes up in search engines and whatnot. Also, I'll tell your friends because word of mouth, the old school method, works really well too. Uh, thanks for listening. And otherwise, come back next Friday for the next episode. Thank you. Bye.